Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can study and to learn how you want us to live. We ask you to guide us through this section. Let us learn what you would have us to learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Isaiah 24. And this is the final destruction of the earth and the picture of the white throne judgment and the new heaven and the new earth uh, in, this, in this little chapter. So we're going to examine this. Starting at verse 1. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters it abroad, the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The earth languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate thereof of the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The new wine mourneth, the wine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of the tambourine cease, the noise of them that rejoice ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with song, strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down, every house is shut up and no man may come in. There is crying for wine in the streets, all joy is darkened. The mirth of the land gone in the day in the city is left desolate and the gate is smitten with destruction. All right. Very, very happy, high, high spirited uh, section here. <laughs> uh, starts out with behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. And this really is going to be a picture of the end, the end, end. <laughs> All right, during the tribulation time, God judges the world, but then he totally un unmakes the earth. And that's literally what it says. It's turned and turns it upside down, literally says to twist inside out. And the earth will be completely destroyed and undone. Basically, that's what I said. He, I said that. He's going to let go. And why does he have to let go? Because of the destruction of, of sin and the, that has been on this world. And we've talked about this. Sin, the curse of sin, was more than just the death of human beings. It was the death of all things. All Disease and death covered the world. Thorns were produced. Weeds were produced. Storms were produced. You know, all these things happened that caused problems to the earth. And we can't even picture what a perfect world would be like because we have no frame of reference to even hang it on. Uh, we, can, we can picture a world maybe with no thorns or weeds. We can picture a storm, you know, world where maybe there's no storms. But you know, we can't, really can't picture what a perfect world would be like. Um, and funny thing is, we got people, especially in churches, that try to strive to be perfect. And they don't even know what it means to be perfect. Because even when we think we're doing good and we, we look like we're doing good, we still have bad thoughts. We still have things that we're working on. Even when we hold in our anger, our bad language, our bad actions, we all know that inside we have a great turmoil fighting it. And God is saying, I'm going to just twist everything upside down and I'm just going to destroy it all. And this picture, you know, here in Isaiah is very poetic the way he does it. He says he scatters abroad the inhabitants, which, yeah, they're going to be scattered, all right? They're going to stand before him in judgment. Uh, and then in, in verse 2, it says, you know, you know, as with the priest, uh, so with the people, or as with the people, so the priest, you know, the servant and the master. And he goes, basically, it's a long-winded way to say everybody will be equal at that time. Uh, nobody's going to be able to buy their way out of it. Nobody's going to be able to send their servant. Okay, servant, you go take the punishment. And over the past, there's been a lot of times where people would send their slaves to, to, for, military, for military duty. They'd send their slave to, you know, if they were going to be in prison, they sent their slave to be in prison for them. You know, uh, and God's saying, in that day, no. You will all be equal. 
You're, you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm, I'm so important. And this is a funny thing. People spend their entire life trying to become important, whatever they think important is. Having lots of employees, being in charge of something. And God says, in the end, it means nothing. In the, in, you know, and uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that death comes upon all. You know, it, it's going to take us. Matter of fact, bad, bad things that seem, or things that seem to be bad, overtake all, all people. You can't get rich enough to to buy your way out of tri- all trials. You might get rich enough to get yourself out of some things, but ultimately, you're going to die. And there are some things you're going to get sick. You know, um, what's his name? The very rich guy that was a germaphobe who tried to hide himself, and he still got sick. Uh, Huh? Hughes. Hughes. Yeah, Hughes, you know, tried to use his wealth to keep away from sickness. And he still kept, you know, kept getting sick. Which ultimately, the more you try not to get sick and, and hide yourself, the more you're likely you are to get sick. And this has been something I've seen, you know, people who are germaphobes who are always using sanitizer and everything to be sick all the time. And they never expose themselves to it, so when they do get hit, they really get sick. Uh, but it basically, this is saying in verse 2, everybody's going to be equal. You know, you're not going to get away from the death. You're not going to get away from this de- destruction. Even the world itself is not going to get away from that destruction. Uh, in verse 3, it says, The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. And in the Hebrew, this, it says, The land shall be emptied, emptied, and spoiled, spoiled. <laughs> It puts a devil emphasis on it, which we lose in the English version of it. But it, by putting utterly in there, they're, they're talking about it. But he's going, it's going to be emptied. You know, and we think about this. You know, God is going to say this world is going to be totally emptied. And he says it's going to be spoiled. What does the spoiler do? Takes out everything of value from it. And God says, I'm, what, what is the value to God? His people. You know, the only thing that God finds valuable in this world is us. He finds people so valuable that Jesus died for our sins so that we could spend eternity with him. So when it's time to destroy it, he's going to spoil this earth. He's going to take everything of value out of it, his people. And then he's going to destroy this world and create a new one for us. Yeah. He doesn't, God doesn't need another world. For some reason, I guess we do. <laughs> Even in our glorified bodies, we will need some, some world to exist in or he wouldn't make it. And I don't know what that means. People go, well, what will we look like when we're in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're uh, taken, we're snatched away into heaven. We don't have a, you know, and then God gives us a glorified body when he takes us in the rapture. The second, the second uh, um, <coughs> um, resurrection. And we have some kind of body, and apparently that body needs some place other than just heaven. And God's going to create a new heaven and new earth. What's a new heaven and new earth going to look like? I don't know. Well, we know it doesn't need any light. We know there's no darkness. We know there's no time as we know it, even though the tree of life produces fruit in its seasons. There's some form of time different from what we have now, but, but not known to us there. Because he says there's no time, even though the, the tree's producing fruit in its, month, in its seasons. So there's some form of time, uh, but not necessarily the fourth dimension that we know of as time. Uh, in case you don't know what the fourth dimension is, time, even by our, our thinking. We have a single point, a line, the, three dim- the third dimension, and then the fourth dimension is time, which we can only experience going forward. God being outside of time and above time can go back and forth in time just as we can go back and forth in our three-dimensional world. God handles the fourth dimension with no problem. We can't. We can only go forward in it. And what's beyond that dimension? Who knows? Scientists have speculated that there's lots of dimensions out there. I have no problem with that. God created all of them. and He's above all of them, which really stakes us into a how big is God? You know? How many dimensions are there? He's, he's, he's that big. He, covered, he's, he encompasses all of those. And so we see this process here that God says everything is going to be spoiled. Why? Because God has spoken. The power of God's word. 
in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. You, know, you think about that kind of power. You know, there was nothing, and God spoke, and there was a universe. Then he spoke and formed the universe into what we now know of this world. Well, the fallen world at this point, but he produced a perfect world. And the wonderful thing is the more we look at what God has created, the more we delve into science and what God has created, the more precision and design we see in his creation. And it's amazing to me how scientists will try to explain so much of his design away. How do, you, how do you have a cell? Even the cell. When I took cellular biology in college, it was just amazing to me that anybody would think that the cell could have just, just happened. Okay, uh, and I can't go into everything about it, but you know, to get food into the cell, there's an enzyme that, that fits into a cell, a, a part of the cell wall, and opens up the cell so the food can get in and then take out the waste, and then it closes the, the door again. It's like a lock and a key. Without the enzyme, you could not enter the cell, and without the lock in the cell, you can't enter, enter the cell. And people want to say it just, just somehow happened. Both of those things came together at just the right moment to be used. Yeah. Yeah, at the same moment that everything else started. Uh, and you know, inside the cell is just so intricate. And we've, we've seen some of those things when we did the Truth Project, you know, just the micro machinery that's inside the cell. Now, what part of it could we get by without? None. <laughs> we need every bit of it. You know, and it's an amazing thing, even down to the simplest cell. It's simple. <laughs> uh, the, the, the little tiny cells cannot exist without without everything happening at the same moment. And yet somehow the scientists want to say it just accidentally happened. You know, somewhere, somewhere it, it accidentally happened. God's plan, God spoke it, and in the end, he's going to speak and it's going to stop. Or as I like to say, he just lets go of it. He quits thinking about it and lets it, lets it dissolve. Uh, and as Peter tells us, it'll be in a fiery ball that it explodes, and that would be literally if God just stop thinking about the, the atoms. Can you imagine, we've all seen the pictures of, a, of one atom being split and the power that's generated. Imagine when God splits all the atoms of the earth at the same moment. He says just, okay. And everything just literally explodes with a power that is just un, unfathomable. Every atom literally splitting at the same moment. That would be power. And not just our earth, but all of heaven. You know, it's going to be quite a, quite a display. I'm glad I'm going to be with God in heaven to watch that display. I wouldn't want to be on it, this part of the side of it. All right, verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The earth languishes and fades away. The haughty man of the earth do languish. Okay, this is a very poetic chapter. He repeats himself a lot. He says the earth is going to mourn and fade away. You know, lament and sink down. You know. And it's kind of interesting that God speaks of the earth as if it's some kind of entity. Because Jesus himself and the Pharisees said, you know, stop these people from crying out, you know, Hosanna. Jesus said, if they stop, the very rocks will cry out, will cry out. Uh, when God came to Cain and said, what have you done? He goes, am I my, my, my brother's keeper? He goes, the earth cries out. The blood and the earth cry out. You know, God, there's something different in the way God perceives the earth and nature from the way we perceive it. I, I think of the plants and everything as living. I've never really thought of the planet itself or the earth itself as living myself. Even though the Bible seems to very much indicate that there's some something there. Uh, now, is it really alive or spirit like we are? No, I don't think so. But there seems to be something there that God says nature acknowledges him. And the more we look at it, you know, he very clearly is talking about this. Earth, and Paul even says that the earth mourns and it travails because of the curse. Uh, and it's quite an amazing thing when we think about it. 
You know, and I've and I've really been dawn on, dawning on me this probably the last year or two, how much suffering the earth had because of sin, not just man. You know, I've always thought about man and direct living nature, but it's really been dawning on me over the last probably year or two, maybe three, what the earth went through, and is going through. Earthquakes, you know, violent violent uh, storms, you know. All the, well, yeah, all of this stuff. Well, just, just literally all that it goes, that the earth is going through. Why? Because of man's sin. Yeah. What a power Adam had when he sinned to destroy not just mankind, not just the animal kingdom, not just the plant kingdom, but the entire earth. And I sometimes wondered, did it include the universe? as we know it, you know, because I don't know how that power, how much power there went. But you know, God's going to destroy the heaven and the earth. Now, does that mean just this planet or all of heaven? You know, just the first heaven or the second heaven? Possibly some, I've heard a pastor even say the third heaven. Why? Because Satan has entered into the throne room of God that he may have to dissolve the third heaven and reform form it. And I don't know about that one. That one, because <laughs> Satan was kicked out, and I don't know. In one side, I understand what he's saying. You know, if there's something beyond that, God's in charge of it. He can just take everybody to, the four, to a fourth heaven and destroy everything and give, it, give us back new one. It doesn't really matter. We're going to be protected because we're with God. And I don't know the extent of what sin has done. But sin has made a mighty stain on God's kingdom and his world. Now, the, the third heaven could be washed by the blood of Christ. That's not a big problem. Uh, and Jesus, when he died, took his blood into heaven to the throne room and put it on the, the real mercy seat, not the shadow of the mercy seat here on the world, but took it as the priest into the heavenly pre, uh, mercy seat and presented his blood as the forgiveness of people. And so we see this great power. And... Uh, we talked about this when we did the tabernacle, because I see some blank looks, but when we did the tabernacle, we talked about how it is a shadow of heaven. And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that everything in, was done by a very exact plan. Why? Because it was a copy, a shadow of the heavenly temple, which would have been where God sits. Uh, described a little bit in Isaiah 6, where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What temple? I believe he saw the heavenly temple and God sitting on the mercy seat. And the blood of Jesus was placed upon the mercy seat so that we would have forgiveness. And long, long, long study that we did on that in the past. So we're not going to do that tonight. <laughs> we only spent six or maybe even a year or two on it. <laughs> but definitely six or seven months. Um, Verse 5, the earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. The earth is defiled, and we talked about that already, or profaned. Why? Because the inhabitants have transgressed God's laws. And, you know, we like to try to think, you know, well, Adam and Eve sinned, you know, and the rest of us can try to somehow manage to survive and do good. No, nobody is going to do good. And amazingly, it isn't just God's laws that we defy. God will judge people not just because of his laws. He'll judge them that they didn't obey their own rules. And we know people all the time, they, they make their own rules, and then they violate their own rules. It's not just God's rules. And God will say, well, you had your rules. You couldn't even obey your rules. Uh, this happens in... Businesses, businesses all have their own set of rules, you know, that are right or wrong. You know, they have the laws of the, of the world, but they end up, there's certain things that are right or wrong, and if people violate those rules, they get in trouble. And believe it or not, even gangsters and bad guys have a set of rules. At the prison, there are rules. Besides the rules the prison sets up, the, the inmates have rules. Now, and... They will take care of each other when they violate rules, and they do. And 
Now, most of their rules make no sense to those of us outside the prison, and no, don't make sense to the, you know, to, the, to the people that work there sometimes. We just don't understand their rules. But they make sense to them. And yet, they can't keep their own rules. And God's when he's going to bring people to the judgment seat, he's going to judge them by his laws, but he's also going to point out, you didn't obey your own rules. You couldn't even follow your own thing. And, and we all can picture times when we have made rules in our life where we have not obeyed our own, our own rules. Well, this is what I always do until it seems to be better not to do it. <laughs> and then, I, then we'll change our mind and try to get out of it. And God's going to say, I'm going to judge you even by your own. And just going to point out, not only could you not keep mine, but you can't even keep yours. And yours are a lot, a lot lower and a lot, you know, not as important as mine, God's going to say. And yet, you can't keep it. And then he says, you changed the ordinances. And this is kind of an interesting word. It uh, in, indicates that they changed the rules. Yeah. And this is what's going on in our world today. People keep changing the rules. God has given rules, and people cry, keep trying to rewrite them. And you know, the more we separate ourselves from God's rules and the absolute authority, the deeper into depravity we get. Why? Because once you get rid of the anchor, where do you, where do you now put, the, put the, new, the, the new low? And it'll keep going lower and lower and lower. And we see this with anything they do. Anything that leaves the way God says to do it keeps getting worse. God says to tell the truth, and we've talked about this in Deuteronomy. He defines truth as telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, and now we get to this place where, well, as long as I don't actually break the truth, I don't, I don't have to tell you everything I know. I don't have to tell you all the truth. And we start slipping down. So at what point are you now getting down to where you're not telling the truth? And we've got people who spin. That's our new word in the, in, around us. We spin it. You know, I'm, I'm going to try to, I did something really bad, but now I'm going to tell you lots of lies and try to twist it out of what it was into something that may, you know, for some reason it was good. Well, okay, so we're just going to tell you a lot of lies to make it, make it sound like it was okay. This is the way our world thinks. And we're getting worse and worse. We, we've allowed homosexuality to be considered normal. It will not be much longer before almost every single sexual depravity is accepted. It just won't. We disconnected from God's standard of one man, one woman for life, and if you're not going to be married, no sex, to it'll be soon, anything goes. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Disconnect from God's rules, <laughs> it gets worse. And uh, you know, we look at some things like theft. You know, we got people who are, we got a lot of people who are career criminals in theft, but they're not criminals because they're kleptomaniacs. They just can't help themselves. They're sick. Okay, uh, where where do we draw that line? You know, it's going to keep going down. And in the scriptures, we're told that our world is headed that way. Outside revival for God, for a short delay. Our world is headed that way. Why? Because he said the world is going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Disconnected from God's laws to whatever they want. And whatever we want as sinners is sinful. Just the way it's going to be. What that level of sin is going to be different from each person. You've got a few that might be a little more righteous, but they're not even going to obey their own, their own rules. And we've got a big problem. And then he says they've broken the everlasting covenant. God's rules are everlasting. And we've talked about this many times. Why are God's rules everlasting? Because they become from who he is. God will not lie because he is truth. So he will not lie. He will not steal. Number one, he owns everything, so he can't steal it. But, you know, but he's still not going to steal. You know, God won't even steal our obedience because he gave us the free will to make choices. God is perfectly able with his omnipotency to make us be obedient. But he will not because it's against his character. 
He will not steal what he gave to us. He gave us the right to make decisions, so he will not take that away from us. Now, he might manipulate us into making the right decision that he wants us to do, but he is not going to make us do it. And he's fully able to. Yeah, this is the this is the attack of a lot. Well, if God was really all powerful, he nothing bad would ever happen. Everybody would do what was right. Yeah, God could have a bunch of robots. He could have created a bunch of robots, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted people that could make decisions for and against him. And that takes a lot of love on his part and a lot of pain for him because as he watches somebody make bad decisions, it hurts. I know, I've seen it both in my family and even as I've taught people over the many years to watch, you know, help try to teach and, and say this is the way to go and then watch them make bad decisions. And it's like, okay, God, I, I understand just a tiny bit of what you've gone through. Any parent has also seen this with their kids. You raise your kids trying to teach them to, to be obedient and then you watch them make bad decisions. Sometimes really bad decisions. And you're going... I just want to strangle you. I want to, you know, I want to grab hold of you and make you understand. And you can't. And God won't do it either. But you can picture how hurt God is every time we make a bad decision. And he's standing there probably shaking his head saying, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the consequences. And you're making me have to give you a spanking, no less. <laughs> you know, God's shaking his head. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. And yet you need it. And being a good parent, he will make sure that it happens. Sometimes we're not good parents. Sometimes we don't give them the discipline that is deserved. Uh, and I love this. this. This verse just in verse 6 jumped out at me. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth. They that dwell therein are desolate, and the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. That first part, the curse devoured the earth. Who introduced the curse? Adam. Adam brought the curse to the earth and it has been devoured. It's, been, it's devouring the earth. It's devouring men. The curse is so powerful and you know, we talk about how when things are let go and brought out that they end up being worse than we ever could picture. Adam and Eve never pictured the, the, the devastation they were bringing upon this world. Otherwise, they would have never done it. They, and we, when we sin, never really think about all the consequences. And if you think about you know, some of the sins you've create, you know, created in your life and look at the chaos that they've created, how the chain reaction on many things have happened, and it doesn't even have to be what we consider as humans a big sin. You know, uh, how many times has a lie taken over your life? You know, just a quick lie. You know, we like to tell our kids, you know, if you tell the truth, you're in less trouble, and yet we'll, we even as adults will forget that axiom we try to get our kids to believe. You know, and well, I really don't want to get in trouble, so I'll just, I just won't quite tell the truth. And the next thing, that lie gets bigger and bigger and bigger and always implodes upon us. It always does. And you know what? Even if we somehow seem to get away with it, it gnaws at our own conscience. I was listening to a, a story uh, on, for the kids one time, and it talked about this guy who apparently got away with his lie. And the point, though, was that he remembered it. 30, 40 years later, he remembered the lie. You know, so he never really, truly got away with it. It was always in the back of the mind. Number one, it might come out, you know, which is even worse, 30, 40 years later coming out. Uh, but you know, sin has a consequence. We need to really, and I keep hammering on that because I want us to really understand. When we're tempted, we need to understand there's a consequence, and we need to understand the consequence is going to be bigger than we ever think it will be. And I'm hoping, especially when we keep bringing the kids in, that they will get this into their mind. I want the adults to get it, but I definitely want the kids to understand. Sin has consequence. Anything that goes in our life that is not the way God wants tends to go into the next generation. The good news is we can turn that around. And righteousness can also go that same direction. I get used to studying my Bible and reading my Bible. 
and my kids see me, which is what I did. My dad got, when he got saved, he was always studying the Bible, praying. I grabbed hold of that same group. My kids, a couple of them, <laughs> have picked up that same. Each individual pays for their own sin. When we sin, we set a pattern for our children to follow. And one of the things that we look at is our children follow us more than we want them to follow us in most cases. Uh, one of the things we notice is, and this is why sometimes we get so angry with our children, is they have what, what we don't like about ourselves is coming out of our children and oftentimes intensified. And it really kind of angers us because we don't like it in ourselves to begin with and we really didn't want our kids to pick it up. Uh, and we go, and it, we gotta be careful that we don't get too frustrated with that because they've gotta grow too. And we see this over and over, the sin in the next generation does not, is not equal to ours, it's usually worse by human standards. Sin is sin, is sin but by human standards we see it in a deeper, more depraved way. Again, righteousness can be the same thing. We can be blessed in the same way if we set the right tone. It can happen the good side too. We just usually pay more attention to it when it's negative. Yes, I understand the verse, and there is a, you are right, there is a verse that says that the sins of the father is visited into the fourth generation. But again, it is the consequence of our sin that we set in motion, not because I said, okay, God, I can get away with this. I'm, you know, I'm not going to get punished. My great-great-great-grandchild's going to get punished. No, that's not, what, that's not what it means. It should make us think about what we do in a, in a different way. And this is why God's word has to come in and break the yoke. Because sin has a stranglehold on us that we're not even aware of how deep it goes. We're not aware of how pervasive it is and God's word has to come in and break it and be able to change the pattern. I don't know who I would have been if, I, if my dad hadn't got saved. Okay, I got saved when I was 10 years old, but going to church once a week was not going to change my life. My dad getting saved did make a big difference in my life because it was a different, different way of living. We now lived God 24-7. And this is very important because... There's people that go, well, you know, I'll go to church once a week. I'll, I'll put my time in with God. Well, that's not going to change your life. It's, it's better than no times a week. But if that's all you're spending with God is one day a week, it's not going to do it. And there's many people who say, well, I send my kids to, to, to church. Well, that sending is good. I'm glad you're sending them to church, but that's not going to get them committed unto God. You know, a true walk with God is 24-7. You know, every moment of our day has to be devoted to God and spend time with Him. That doesn't mean we totally forget about this world. But you know, one of the things about it, the more I concentrate on God, the more good that I'm going to do and the more I'm going to help this world and the more I'm going to be successful. You know, God has a great plan. He says, work as unto the Lord. So when I'm at work working for somebody else, if I'm working for God, I'm going to be the best employee they have because I'm always being watched. You know, I'm always being watched by the one I care about. It doesn't matter whether the boss is there or not. If, I, if I'm in my family, I'm, I'm looking, God, what do you want me to, how do you want me to treat my family? How do you want me to treat my wife? How do you want me to do every part of my life? And if I'm putting my mind on God and his way of doing it, everything is going to go much better than I could ever imagine, far above what anybody would exceed. Now, we're never going to get there completely. But we need to really be keeping in mind, God, how do I live for you? How do I live your way? Help me. Which means I need to be in his word, I need to be taught, I need to be studying. And that way when th something comes up, you know, I've said this before, you know, I don't know if they're still popular, but the WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, I think there were great verses on one side, but to have to stop and think about everything is too late. It's too late if that if, if when you're in the middle of a situation to have to stop and think what would Jesus do, you've probably already done the wrong things. It has to be who you are. Jesus has to be so much in you that you make the right decisions because he is you. You know, he's he's be, you're becoming him. And you start making the right decision. This is what I talk about. We get so filled with God that he comes out. And then we kind of look back over and go, hey, you know what? That was the right decision. 
I don't even remember making that decision, which I didn't, because God made it through me. It's like, wow, that was a, that was a good decision. God, you and I made a really good decision back there. You know, actually, God, you made a good decision back there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we need to be looking at this. Sin caused about the curse which devoured the earth. What a power. And in one sense, Satan being able to trick Adam and Eve affected the entire world. And every one of us has paid for Adam's, Adam's sin. And the consequence of his sin was that we all pay for the one sin that he did. You know, quite, a, quite a cost. And, you know, like I said, I know that he wasn't thinking about all of these generations later they were going to pay for what they were going to do. No idea what he did. And, you know, the same thing for us. We have no idea. We really have no idea what our sin, the repercussions of our sin is. You know, the idea of the pebble thrown into the, into, the, into the pond and the ripples going out, getting bigger and bigger for quite a while until they hit the shore. You know, we don't know what the repercussion of anything that we do is. But everything we do has reper, repercussions. And we need to keep that in mind. Good and bad. Huh? Good and bad. <laughs> Good and bad, yeah. All right, verse 7, more poetry. The new wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of the tambourine cease, the noise of them that rejoice ends, the joy of the harp ceases. The, they, that, they shall not drink with a song, strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. All right. He says the new wine mourns or laments. Uh, most people drink to try to forget, and we know that that doesn't work. It goes, the wine languishes or, or fails. <laughs> and then, you know, all the merry-hearted do sigh. And merry-hearted literally is talking about the, the center seat of our emotions that, is, that he's saying. Those who are very joyful, even in their core, they're being. And we know there's some people like that. They're just joyful. Doesn't seem to matter what's going on. They're joyful. He goes, even those type of people are going to sigh. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because we can be very out, outgoing, very merry, letting God control. But if we forget God, we can get very quickly tired out. Uh, and it's so easy to get out, outside of God, you know. Get a couple days without reading your Bible, without doing a lot of prayer, and, and that joy can disappear very quickly. <laughs> and you may or may not be completely back in the world, but you're starting to feel the pressure. And this is what I've said so many times. If our eyes are on God, we can go through the hardest storms in our life and not notice we're in a storm. We take our eyes off God, and how quickly does even the lightest little thing, God, God hits us with a bunch of feathers, and we're going, oh, man, this is so hard, you know, because my eyes are on him. Very interesting that God says, even the merry-hearted sigh. And when, it's, when it gets to the end, they Everything is gone, so even, even the person who has the most optimistic look is going to go, everything's gone. And then he says, the mirth of the tambourine cease. When, most of the time when you hear a tambourine being played, it's with upbeat music. I don't know if I've ever heard a tambourine being played on depressing music. Uh, I'm trying to think, do they play tambourines on wedding, uh, funeral dirges? I can't think of that. It's, the, tambourine's a pretty happy type of... Interesting, he goes, even the mirth of the tambourine ceases. Those things are really bad. They're not, they're not happy. The joy, uh, the noise of them that rejoice in. So anybody who's happy stops. And the joy of the harp ceases. It says, they shall not drink wine with a song. And apparently people like to sing when they drink oftentimes, or some people do anyway. I don't know. I've never been in that environment. All I know is what I see on TV, and I don't know how accurate that is because I've never been in that, in that world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have been in the karaoke, right? I think those guys have to be drunk to sound that bad. But, uh, uh, but you know, apparently singing and, and, and alcohol tend to go together for certain people. And it says, strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. Even that, you know, they're drinking their strong drink, they're trying to forget, and it's just making them bitter. It's not, it's not helping them. 
We're talking about a picture of total depression and total end times at this point. And God is telling them that it is going to be bad. And again, when I get to these type of things about drinking and partying, that means nothing to me. I've never been in that world. So I take other people's, you know, saying that he's telling the truth, and I believe they are telling the truth because it's in the word of God, and I believe the God's word. But I've not had experience with it. But other than seeing it on movies, and you know, like I say, I don't trust anything I see on movies and shows, you know, but it must have some little inkling in, in real life. And then he goes, the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up and no man may come in. And literally, it's just talking about the end. This is a lot of poetry to say the end is coming. (laughs) And he's being very poetic in it. And it says, there is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. And he goes, people are crying out for wine. And that one I do understand. I've seen people, you know, got, just got just to have my drink. Yeah, get, get me a drink. I've got to forget for, even if it's only for minutes or an hour, I've got to forget. And he says, there's crying in the street. The joy is dark and the mirth of the land is gone. We're talking about a miserable time. In the city is left desolate and the gate is smitten with destruction. And he's again talking about the end. Even the cities, the protected areas are not protected. And we've got to think about this. The city in that day had the wall around it. If you were under attack or things were going bad, you ran to the city because the city kept the enemy out. Also kept you starving if there was no, if they kept her, because it had enough people to circle it, but it was a protected place. And it says, even the place of protection is desolate and the gate is broken down. And it goes, you, know, you don't have any trust. When you put your trust in what the world gives you, it's going to fail. And we understand that when we put our trust in what the world gives us, it never, had, it never feel, fulfills. God, if I just get enough money, I'll be happy. I can afford a nice house. And I can afford a nice car. I won't have any problems. And most people think about that when they're, you know, that's usually the driving force to get more and more money. If I just get enough everything will be okay. If I get enough fame, everything will be, be okay. If I just get enough friends, everything will be okay. There's never enough, and it's never okay. And it never fulfills, it never makes it okay. God says, I'm the only one that can fill, fill you. I'm the only one that can protect you. I'm the only one that can meet what you want. And everybody has what they, they pursue. You know, some of them we laugh at, you know, I'd never want to try to get money. Okay, fine. You're not after money. What are you after? Well, God, I'm just going to be as good a person as I can. I'm going to be as nice to as many people as I can. And God says, your good works aren't going to do it either. God, I'm just going to, you know, treat my whole family as best I can. I'm going to be the best mother, father, grandmother, grandfather that the world has ever seen. And God says, not going to do it. You know, there could be good things we seek after, but they're not going to fulfill. They're not going to be the answer. You know, it doesn't always have to be depravity. It could be trying to get good works. It could be trying to be the, the best person that you could possibly be so that everybody is going to be benefited by knowing you. And it's still not going to be what works. We've got to be able to understand this. And this is something that people don't always understand, especially Christians. Well, God, you know, I'm not drinking and I'm not stealing and I'm not, and I'm being as loving as I can to people. And God said, no, well, that's good, but am I the one doing this for you or are you seeking me? And we need to be very careful because even good works are not going to be fulfilled. Jesus told those on the, that, he, that he dismissed, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. What did they, what did they say we'd done? Well, we visited the poor, we went to the prisons, we clothed the, we clothed the naked, we helped the widows, we helped the orphans. God, we did all these good things. And he says, but you didn't know me. Yeah, yeah you, you looked great to everybody. You did all the things that are really good to do. Nothing wrong with their, their list of things. As a matter of fact, there are good things to be doing. But it's not going to please God. It's not going to be, it's not even going to fulfill us because we're not in God. Okay? We could give all that we have. God, I'm giving you 100% of my money. And, you know, I'm not keeping any of it. But I'm not doing it for you. 
And God says, well, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't need your money. And God doesn't need money. He doesn't need money. His, his churches really technically don't need your money if it's not God leading you to give it. Because God's going to manage to get it to them. One way or the other, he'll get the, his ministries what they need to survive. He gives us the privilege of serving him. And that's the good news for us. We get the privilege of helping God. In our tithes and offering, in our service, in our ministering to other people. When we do it unto God to minister to people, God says, now you're, now you're where you're supposed to be. You're serving me. And if we're trying to do it on our own, and it's not for him, that's why you didn't need it anyway. You're, you know, you, you're not doing anything for me when you're doing it to lift yourself up, and you're trying to help your, lift yourself up. Desolation. What the world says is strong is going to be weak. And we see this over and over again. Whatever we put our confidence in, God will destroy. doesn't matter what it is. If our, if our confidence isn't in God, he'll destroy what our confidence is. It may take a while, but he'll let it, he'll let it fail. Well, no matter what it is, even good things, he will let it fail just to show us that we need to put our trust in him. And I've shared with you all, there was a time when I was trying to get my own way. I was going to get out of my, tr- my troubles. Six years worth of time. Good plans, because I'm a planner. I knew they were good plans, and God made every one of them fail. Usually within days of, of being started. Okay, God, I'm going to get this done, and this is going to take care of it, and immediately it would go out the window. Until I finally just said, God, I give up. I'm going to put my trust in you because if, it's not, if you're not going to do it, it's not going to work. And almost instantly, everything changed. That's the way God is. He's going to say, you want to put your trust in? Put whatever, whatever you want to fill that blank in. And again, don't ever just automatically go to sin. It can be good things. Satan has a plan for us. Number one plan for him is to keep people from getting saved. That's his first plan. He doesn't want people, anybody getting saved because he wants them to go to hell. Because that hurts God. God's going to be hurt by sending people to hell. The second plan is, if you do get saved, he doesn't mind if all you do is sit on the, on the, on the bench or the pew or whatever you, know, whatever you have in your church and do nothing. He doesn't, doesn't care if you do nothing. You're not going to hurt his kingdom. Okay, he lost you. You're going to go to heaven. But you're not doing any damage to the kingdom. If you decide to start getting busy with God and do something, Satan's next attack on us is almost always to get you so busy doing things for God that you burn out. And this is something I am very careful to tell people. Do not get too busy. Because you'll get so busy doing things that you weren't called to do that you'll end up just saying, well, none of it's worth it and you quit doing anything and you're back to where Satan, Satan lost you to the, you know, to the God but you're now doing nothing for the kingdom because you burnt out. I've said over and over, find out what God wants you to do. One, two, three things, whatever it might be. Do those and learn a very important word. No. Okay? Because churches have a habit of burning out people who are willing to work. Before you know it, they're, they're, they're the deacon, they're the, the landscaper, they're the cleaner, they're the they're the uh, usher, they're, they're the teacher, they do everything because they're willing to do it. And you, we all need to be able to, and I've been there, <laughs> been there myself, doing too many things. We need to be very careful. Learn to talk to God and say, God, teach me when to say no. Now, don't say no so much that you're not doing anything, <laughs> but... Learn to be able to say no and say, no, this is not, that's not my job. And you know, we do want to try different things in a church. You know, if somebody asks you to do something in a church, you probably want to say, okay, God, unless God says absolutely don't do it, you might say, okay, God, I'm not sure about this. Let me try it for three or four months and see how it works. Because at least you're committed long enough to find out in my past learning curve. And then, no, it wasn't for me. Or, man, I really enjoyed it. I want to keep doing it. How did I learn the things that, I, that I'm good at in church? I've tried just about everything there is in a church, church to do at, for different periods of time. Because 
I learned that principle a long time ago. Try. Number one, you'll be surprised what you can do. You'll be surprised what God says do. You know, I love, I love Sharon's, you know, talking about how now she passes out tracks and she's getting to a place where she loves to pass them out. You know, and she said at the beginning she never thought she would. I've heard that testimony from different people over and over and over again. I'm doing these things I never thought I would have done, and I love doing it. I can tell you right now, talking to people would never have been my first choice. That's not my personality, and yet God has put me in a position to teach me to do it. And I'm not talking about teaching. Teaching is a different thing altogether. I mean literally just talking to people. Uh, I, I tend to be an introverted person. I used, to, I used to go to church, and I was very lonely in church because I didn't talk to anybody. I was always waiting for that person to talk to me. And God finally got it into my head, maybe if you talk to them, they'll talk to you. I had to tell my daughter the same thing because she's so much like me. She goes, well, nobody talks to me. I go, how many people are you talking to? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, you know, but we need to learn to step out. Try things for God. Do not sit back and just trust in the world. Because anything we trust in the world is going to fail us. It will fail us just by design, and God's going to make sure that it fails his children. But in the long run, it always fails. It just, it's not substantial enough to, to be able to support. And for God's children, he just helps intensify it faster. <laughs> he makes sure that we fail a lot faster when we try to trust in the world. And Besides that, when we're trying to trust in the world as his children, he doesn't let us get satisfaction from it at all. And especially if you try to go back to something you used to do before you were saved. You know, God, I'm going to go back too. Again, pin in what you used to do before you were saved, and you go back in and it doesn't, you don't even get the little bit of pleasure out of it at all because you know you're not supposed to do it. So you already lost your, any chance of pleasure. And God's saying, Get back here where you belong. And he just makes sure. Our spirit says, no, this isn't where I belong. And whoever your partners are going, you don't belong here either. You're supposed to be one of those Christians. You're not supposed to be doing this. So you get it from both sides. And so we want to just be able to say, God, help me. Again, we understand consequences. And we also understand that there's going to be blessing. You know, to me, when I think of consequence, I think of both blessing, positive, and negative consequences. But when I talk to others, I've got to make sure I bring in the blessing, <laughs> you know, blessing, because most people don't think of consequences as positive. But all things that we do have consequences, good or bad. And we just need to keep that in mind. And good consequences have further ramifications than we ever think they will, too. People watch us. It's an amazing thing. And I, oftentimes people, well, nobody's watching me. I'll go, you will be surprised how many people are watching you. If anybody knows you're a Christian, they're watching you. Plain and simple, they're watching you, good or bad. They're usually watching us, hoping on one side that, yes, we have something that is real. But on the other side, they're kind of hoping that we're going to fail and just prove to them that Christians aren't, aren't what they, aren't everything that they say they're going to be anyway. They'd like it to be real, but they're hoping that, you know, on the other side they're going, yeah, they're just going to be just like everybody else. They're hoping. They want to see something real. The world wants to see something real because they know they don't have it, which led us to become Christians. There's something there that I don't have and I want. And then we put our faith in it and say, God, I'm putting my whole faith, my whole trust in this. Is it real? I've walked with God long enough now that I know that it's real. I still fail every once in a while, more often than I want. <laughs> but I also say, God, it's real. When I'm walking with you, it is real. And you give me everything that you've promised. And you know, one of the things that is so important is that we need to make good decisions early on. Loretta loves to say, you know, why did I have to wait until I was 100 to learn these things, even though she's not quite 100 yet. But, you know, but, you know we end up taking so long to learn so much of what God God has said, you know, I'm glad I started when I was 10 years old, and I learned a lot of things as a teenager. But I'm still learning things that I wish I go, God, why couldn't I have learned this back when I was a teenager? There were things that I could have solved a lot of my problems. I could have solved a lot of issues. 
And I know many of you have gotten saved and on fire for God in a later year, and you've got more, more places like that than I do. But, you know, we all have places where we look and say, God, why am I so slow at learning this? The only thing we can look at is learn it today, and we're better off than learning it 10 years from now. Keeps repeating it, keeps repeating it, keeps repeating it. Because he wants us to learn. He, want, he knows that we're slow. He knows that we're wasting a lot of our life learning. But he's also saying, you will. You're going to. You're going to get there. Not as fast as I might want you to be, but you're going to, you're going to get there. The disciples walked with Jesus for four years, and it still took them a long time to learn the lessons he taught them directly. So we're, we're not any better, they're not any better off than we are. But you know, we want to look at, God, help me keep my eyes on you. Help me understand that there's consequences and help remind. And that could be part of your prayer life. God, help me always remember consequences for actions. You know, just to be, to be looking at our life. God, everything I do has a consequence. And for, for many of us, when we see other people that are getting themselves in trouble, you know, I'm sad when the people get into trouble, especially when they're people that I've taught and they make bad decisions. But I also go, God, they knew. They knew. It's their consequence. I'm going to be there to try to help them out when they're ready to be helped out. But I'm not going to meddle in it. Because if I come in and try to fix their problems for them, they don't learn a lesson. And this is the hardest thing that we have, even as parents. Our kids make mistakes and there's consequences. We want to rescue them. We don't want them hurt. We don't want them in pain. And yet that pain is what will keep them from repeating the same incident. Now we're there. We're there to help them out. We're there to lift them up. We're there to give them advice. And we try to, try to help them out if, if and when they're ready to listen. And they'll come when they get to a certain age where they don't listen. They're adults. They're going to they're gonna make their own decisions, or older teens. And they're going to have to live with the consequence for what they've done. And that consequence may be more severe than we want to see them go through. Uh, but that consequence also is what will help shape their life. Most of us have to learn things the hard way. You know, I, I'm the type that I like to learn things from other people's mistakes. But you know, the things that really have changed my life are the things I've learned the hard way. I've gone out, made a mess of things, and go, oh, wow, God, you know, I don't like where I'm at. And God says, well, maybe you won't do it again. And I've been pretty good about not repeating a lot of the hard, decisions, hard things. But, you know, we need to also keep that in mind. And this is why I tell people, I am not going to stand in judgment of anybody for what they do. God's already taken care of them. My job is to love them and build them up and try to bring them back and establish them when they're ready to be, you know, ready to be helped. There's many people I look at and say, I'd love to help this person, but until they're ready to accept help, it's not going to work. Because our ultimate goal is for God to help us stand and be a great testimony to him. And that means using our money wisely, using our time wisely, using our efforts wisely, and being able to be a great example to, of God and the blessings of God. And this is something that's very important. God says he's got an abundance of blessing for us. He's going to meet our needs. And this means oftentimes that comes the disguise as hard work. And I've shared with you, when I was walking by faith, you know, all we had is my wife's small income and a whole bunch of bills. Because we had our bills based on a much higher income. God brought some supernatural. I mean, there were times he brought supernatural gifts in. But most of the time, it was somebody calling me up and said, I need this done, or I need this done, and I need this done. Most of them paid me much more than I felt I deserved for the amount of work I put in. But it meant I went out, and I worked. And I worked hard. And God said, here's your blessings. And every once in a while, yes, that check would come in the mail that just somebody would send a check, or somebody would give a gift. But most of it was hard work. God does not expect us to just sit back and do nothing. That's the world's way of doing it, okay? He says, I'm going to bless you, but a lot of times you're going to have to go out and do something. Now, he may bless us more, more abundantly from that, from that gift than it that makes sense, 
but he, he is the one that says, go. He created us to work, not just be lazy and let others take care of us. And this is the hard part about our whole welfare system. We just give people money. And that doesn't help get them motivated to get out of where they're at. And we've got to be careful because when we make things so easy to stay where we're at, there's no growth. Growth always comes from pain. Always. All of our lessons that we learn come from pain. You know, if you want to work out and build muscles, you cause pain to your muscles. You literally, in reality, rip the muscles. They, they repair themselves by filling in those rips and keep getting bigger and stronger in the process. But each time you exercise with, you know, exercise that's going to do any good causes pain. God understands that that's a principle in our life that pain is needed. Trouble is needed. Hardship is needed because it drives us to God. It drives us to depend on him. And very important for us. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Help us, Lord, to learn to depend on you more. Lord, help us to keep you in mind at all times and, and focused on you and all that we go through. Help us understand that when we go through trials, it's only from to help us learn to depend on you. We just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.